Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. As an author, as an entrepreneur, as a creative in this world, I wear like a lot of hats. And that's why I'm excited about today's sponsor, actually from a dear friend of mine, AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs, has awesome tools for authors and creatives as well. AppSumo is the best way to automate all of your busy work that comes from running a business so you can boost your productivity, scale beyond your skill set, and focus on what matters most to you. Just go to social.appsumo.com slash ryan-holiday, and you can use the code ryanholiday at checkout for 20 bucks in free credits. That's social.appsumo.com slash ryan-holiday. And if you want to, of course, just make it easier, just click the link in uh, the show notes of today's episode. That's social.appsumo.com slash ryan-holiday. Use code ryanholiday at checkout at appsumo.com and you'll get 20 bucks in free credits. That's social.appsumo.com slash ryan-holiday. The story we tell is powerful. Do you think Marcus Aurelius believed he was living in the hopeless decline and fall of Rome, that he was the last of the five good emperors? Or do you think he believed in the possibility of a better future, that he was part of a long chain of goodness that he could not disappoint? The story we tell ourselves about who we are is important, It determines what we're capable of being, determines who we are. Thomas Jefferson was complicit in the pervasive sin of slavery. Did he write himself off as an evil, irredeemable hypocrite? Or did he believe that he could, even if he couldn't quite save himself, chart a better path for the future that might one day help his new nation escape the stain of chattel slavery? The story we tell ourselves is important. It can change the world. The same goes for you. Are you a person who fails at everything they do or someone who has failed toward success? Are you a flawed sinner without value or a good person trying to rise above their urges and circumstances? Do you believe that your country's history is one evil deed after another? Or has it been a valiant effort to march with progress and grow from the mistakes of the past? Stories matter individually, collectively, historically. So what story are you telling? Telling your kids, telling your employees, your constituents, your team. Is it the one that has hope of getting better or one that destroys agency and a belief in a better tomorrow? Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. My guest today is someone whose first book I recommend all the time. We sell it at the Painted Porch. And sadly, as I've seen from the comments on many Daily Stoic posts on Instagram, nasty emails I've gotten, even mean, trollish reviews on the, uh, on the podcast here on, on iTunes, clearly a necessary book for some of you. His first book is called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. As you know, the core discipline for the Stoics is wisdom, truth, capital T, truth, the search for truth. Um... You know, one of the things that Antoninus teaches Marcus Aurelius is when to defer to experts, 
how to apply their knowledge, uh, when not to listen to experts. And, and crucially, it's actually during the Antonine Plague that Marcus Aurelius puts Galen, the, the top medical mind in the world, uh, in charge of the, the pandemic response, although that wasn't quite what it was known. However rudimentary his understanding was, I think it's illustrated that Marcus Aurelius took this thing seriously and deferred to not experts outside of his domain of, of expertise. And even crucially, what I love about Marcus Aurelius is we find that he's uh, attending philosophy classes, even as an old man, even as an emperor, even as clearly a brilliant philosopher, he's still focused, uh, as, a, as an observer says, on learning that which he does not yet know. So Tom's first book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, is what we talk about for the first half of today's episode. And then we transition because the, the first book is very related to the next book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. I think what it comes down to, what, what you'll find us talking about in the episode is, what does it mean to be a serious person who's responsible to themselves, responsible to some idea of the common good, who faces truth, uncomfortable truth when it's there, who makes hard decisions when they're there? Um, and uh, I think we have a really great conversation. We don't get too political, but I have very much admired Tom's work, and uh, I follow him on social. Uh, I've read many, many, many of his pieces at The Atlantic uh, which have been wonderful. He's got done some great pieces for the USA Today as well. He's one of the thinkers that's helped me understand what's happening in the world, who I want to be in the world. So I love his stuff. And it's funny, uh, just an inside baseball thing. You're recording these interviews. It's really hard because like, first off, I don't know about you, but I don't get to talk to smart people like this, just like hanging out all the time. So it's, it's, it's an intimidating, difficult thing. Um, and you're kind of, you kind of have a sense of where you want the conversation to go. You're writing stuff down, but you're going back and forth and you have to say something and they're saying something. And then you're like, oh, I want to come back to this. I know when I listen to podcasts, what always drives me nuts is uh, when, the, when someone says like, okay, I had two questions for you. And then they forget or they go, and we'll come back to that or whatever. And they never do. And in the midst of this conversation, there was two things I wanted to, to get Tom's take on. I only got to one. And, and I seriously could not remember what the other one was. It slipped my brain, tired, second interview of the day, also writing, also have two young kids, as you remember. Um, but, but anyways, the point is, I forgot what this thing was, and I'm going to tell it to you now as a little teaser. Um, we talk about what it means to be a serious adult, like what it means to take not just your responsibilities seriously, but take reality seriously. There's this kind of viral video that's going around that I wanted to... To, to, to talk to Tom about, which unfortunately I forgot, but I'm going to talk to you about it. The, it's like a mom speaking at a school board meeting or something in Florida, and she goes, I, I want my daughter to be able to see her teacher's faces. She's like complaining about a potential mask mandate in the school. And the response comes from a nurse who's like working at a hospital in Florida. And she's like, lady, let me tell you how serious it is. But, and, and it's a very compelling video. But what struck me about it, and I wanted to get Tom's opinion on, but I think it connects to the death of expertise, but also the own worst enemy and this idea of what it means to be an adult, to be a stoic in this world. There's a lot of things I want. I don't want to have had to spend the last 18 months of my life, you know, changing my behavior and my actions because of a pandemic. I didn't want to see my stock portfolio plummet at the beginning of it. I didn't want all my speaking gigs to be canceled. I don't want my kid not to be able to do X, Y, or Z. 
I wish I could go see my grandma every day. I wish there's a bunch of things. But here's the thing. I don't get to. I don't get to because it's not safe, because it's not possible, because those are the facts of reality. And the Stokes would say what you wish, what you want, how, how you would like things to be is irrelevant. What matters is what they are. What matters is what your obligations are. What matters is what wisdom, facts, justice, etc., self-discipline dictates that one should do. And so I think this is really important. There's a whole bunch of things I want to do. I wish we could do. I wish we're safe to do. I wish we're smart to do. I wish we're easy to do. But there's a great Theodore Roosevelt story where he's on a camping trip, everything's going wrong. And he says to the guide, oh, I'd rather it be X, Y, or Z. And the guide says, well, you don't get your rathers. And I think that's, that's what I would say to that woman. That's what I'd say to a lot of the people who've complained to me over the pandemic or vaccines or this or that or that. Your rathers are irrelevant. What matters to the Stoic is what is unflinching take on reality, adult responsibilities, the responsibilities, the response of a serious person. And that's what my interview with the wonderful Tom Nichols, author of The Death of Expertise and Our Own Worst Enemy. Pick up The Death of Expertise at the Painted Porch if you can. Uh, we don't carry Our Own Worst Enemy yet in the, at the Painted Porch. You can grab that on Amazon, Audible, wherever you get books. And do follow Tom on social. He is great. Uh, I'm a big fan. Here's my interview with Tom Nichols. Well, I, I wanted to talk uh, about your first book um, because it was the first one of yours that I read that really hit me, yep. um, The Death of Expertise, and was oddly uh, prescient about where we, <laughs> are, where we are right now. Sadly. Um, yes, sa sadly. I feel that my, my first book was about the vulnerabilities of the media system, and uh, it's not pleasant to be right about something terrible. Yeah, no, that's that's a fact. This, uh, you know, you, um, yeah, that's that's really a way, good way to put it. It doesn't feel good to be right about something terrible. Like, like I would trade all the copies that that book has sold to have been twenty percent less correct, as I'm sure uh, you would have loved to have been subsequently uh, repudiated for uh, America's. Uh, uh, radical uh, uh, ch shift towards wisdom and the ability to understand and deal with complex topics and defer to expertise where appropriate. Well, uh, somebody said to me, boy, you sold a lot of copies because of Donald Trump. And I said, I would be glad to give those copies back. Yes, yes. Uh, and then subsequently, you know, obviously him proving a lot of the ideas in the book correct. Uh, it shows, uh, I think it showed, obviously, the terrible cost of the death of expertise. But walk me through what what you mean when you talk about the death of expertise. Because what's weird is that the title of the book could almost, in, in the same way that the phrase, do your research, has been hijacked. Uh, it's a good concept that's been hijacked by people who are not interested in research. The death of expertise almost captures where we are, which is that certain people think, that expertise has failed and no such thing exists. And that's what empowers them. What has gotten us to this place where we seem to be categorically unable to understand there is such a thing as objective reality, facts, information that, that doesn't give a crap about what you think? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because the death of expertise is a title. You're right. Some people said, aha, see, you mean the failure of expertise. And I meant, no, 
the death of the respect for expertise because right. expertise, expertise exists. I mean, we all use it every day, even though we talk about, you know, oh, I don't like experts and I don't want to listen to the eggheads. And yet, you know, every time you get in a car or turn on your tap or, you know, um, open a can of food or, or something, you're, you, you're relying on experts and people just don't like that. They don't like thinking of that because it's disempowering. Um, <clears throat> and I think the thing, the way we got here, and this is what links the death of expertise to the book I just wrote about democracy. The way we got here was this um, rapid and unchecked growth of narcissism beginning sometime in the early 70s, where people simply said, you know, I don't have to listen to experts because I am, to use Richard Hofstetter's wonderful world, I am omnicompetent. Um, you know, I know everything about everything. And that way I am totally powerful and fully independent, and I don't rely on anyone. And of course, that's a that's a child's view of the world, you know. That that is not an adult's view of the world, where you recognize that, um, you know, th that the the baker provides your bread because the baker knows how to make bread, and the person who works in a factory knows how to package the bread, and the driver who knows how to, you know, drive a truck gets the bread to you. And, and instead, we're like, no, I I know all this stuff. Um, you know, no one is the boss of me, and um, I think that. <clears throat> was the underlying problem that I kept trying to wrestle with in the death of expertise, which is not so much that people don't trust experts because let, let's face it. I mean, you know, college professors and eggheads are never popular. They're not your first uh, thought for putting on a, sure. you know, list for a party. Um, but it was the, it was this weird narcissistic childlike insistence that I, it's not just that I don't trust experts, but I am smarter than experts. Like, well well, and I and I kept wondering how. When did that happen? When did, and and I'll just I'll end this part by saying, it happened with me. I'm a I'm a Russia expert. I that was my training <clears throat> 35 years ago. You know, I started learning Russian and doing all those things, and have written many books about Russia and been there many times. And someone basically said to me because I disagreed with them about something. They said, "Well, you know, Tom, I don't think you really understand Russia. Let me explain Russia to you." Right. And I'm like. When, when did people start thinking that was okay? Who does that? And apparently now everybody does it. Yeah, there's a great Richard Feynman quote where he's talking about how hard it is to really know something and the work that it goes in to truly deeply understand an idea or a concept or a field of study. Um, and when you see these people making sort of glib, uh, uh, glib assumptions or, or quips or remarks or sweeping sort of generalizations, you know, you're saying, I know it's that true because they couldn't have done the work to possibly have the certainty that they're having. Um, right. Scott, in the book, I quote um, the utterly ridiculous human being, Scott Adams, who <laughs> unfortunately, you know, is really, I mean, I really like his cartooning and, you know, he's good at cartooning. I mean, his punchlines are funny and the drawings are amusing, but this is also a guy who said, give me an hour with, you know, any subject matter expert and I can become an expert on a thing. Well, um, so I, I know Scott a little bit and I've, I've spent some time with him. And, and like you, uh, I obviously everyone's familiar with Dilbert. That's almost like the extreme end of the spectrum of this where you, you it, it's almost like you have narcissism and then you combine it with the feedback loop of social media. Right. And you get a person who's basically become untethered from reality that, that I think any thinking person immediately goes like, 
what is wrong with this guy? And yet right. the irony right. is there is there's a huge percentage or a huge number of people cumulatively who are who are not only like not suspicious, they're like, this guy fucking gets it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because again, it's it's you know, it's being in the it's being in the treehouse with the cool kids uh saying, We're all the smart kids, you know, not those stupid nerds you know, down in the lab. And, and, uh, it's reassuring, right? It's like, this guy's very rich and he's famous and he's in the entertainment world. And, you know, we're, and obviously, you know, he must really know what's what, um, part of that too, is that we have become obsessive about the idea that if you're good at one thing, you're good at anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's like, well, this guy's a, an award-winning cartoonist. He must know a lot about foreign policy, um, you know, which is inane and, and silly, um, but I, I, I mean, the, the, you talk about the feedback loop of social media and that's a big part of it, of people saying, wow, you know, I mean, I, I guess I kind of like the fact that a lot of my Twitter presence is people telling me how much, how wrong I am and how much they disagree. Um, but it, it really is important to understand some of the limitations here. And I, I'll give you an example. I kind of surprised I was in, um, Switzerland and a graduate student who was just finished her dissertation on Russian politics said, you know, um, I really want your opinion about this because I, I, you know, I, I, I'm curious about the better sources and did I use the right stuff? And I said, look, I wrote my dissertation 33 years ago. You wrote yours yesterday. And on this, you're the new expert. Mm -hmm. It's okay to turn it over. It's okay to say, look, I have a lot of accumulated knowledge and I can help you with some things, but it's also okay to say, um, you know, I, I'm not required to be this this omnicompetent and omniscient 24 hours a day. I, I love the fact that in some environments I've been in, um, sub years ago, about 12 years ago, I, I went on a fellowship to the Kennedy school and I was immediately the dumbest guy in the room. And it was invigorating. The problem is people don't like that feeling anymore. Everybody has to say, well, you're not smarter than I am. I know all about nuclear weapons. I understand Iranian, you know, centrifuge inspections. You can't talk down to me. And all of that comes from, I mean, I, I, I have a pretty healthy ego about my, you know, the things I'm good at, about my writing, about the work I've done. But um, it's almost a relief to be able to say, wow, someone smarter than me is helping me out here. People don't feel that way anymore. They take it because they are narcissistic and childlike about this. Anytime someone says, let me explain something to you, they say, what are you saying? I'm stupid. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe the, I am a little bit. You know? Yeah, I think this goes back to Socrates, that the essence of wisdom is what you don't know. And the Socratic method is is based on what? It's the asking of questions, not the making of statements. And I think social media in particular prioritizes assertions of a fact of fact and opinion compared to, you know, questions or uncertainties. And, and it prioritizes negativity. Of course. Uh, nobody, nobody comes on to Twitter, um, to, or, or to Facebook to say, Hey, I really liked this. Um, and it's funny, you know, because people, it, it, they will even, um, zero in on the negativity and strain out the positivity. Um, you know, every Saturday I get together with my friend, Dennis Herring, who's a, um, gramming, you know, humble brag, my friend, the Grammy winning music producer, um, you know, and we sit around and shoot the breeze about bad 1970s music while we're listening to old Casey Kasem recordings, uh, old Casey Kasem replays on, on XM radio. And, you know, 
about half the time I'll say, oh, I really remember this song and I really love this song and I you know, have fond memories of this song. But the minute I say, man, this song is crap, people will zero in and say, you're negative about everything. Because it's almost like our brains are wired now on social media only to see the negative comment because it's a challenge. No one takes a positive comment as a challenge. No one takes a comment that, hey, I really like you know, the Allman Brothers as a, um, you know, as a challenge to say, oh, yeah, well, what about, you know, Marshall Tucker? But if you say, I don't like the Allman Brothers, people say, aha, now I have something to fight about. And this is why you're wrong. And this is why you should do this. And and I think it's just, you know, Facebook admitted this recently, and it's in the book, in my, my new book. Facebook admitted our algorithm appeals to a basic human attraction to division and conflict. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you brought up that, you know, some people think that the book is about the failures of expertise because there there have been failures of expertise, which is precisely what uh, people seize upon to undermine expertise generally. Like I think about how many, you know, in retrospect, ridiculous or incorrect takes there must you're sort of dating this back to the 70s i think about like what health or diet advice must have been like in the 70s and then then we wonder like why people don't trust the medical establishment or the fda now it is problematic but but it's it's interesting that uh we the the failures of expertise have not have, have have made us more likely to accept dubious information from even less credible people because they're an excuse. And this is the problem with the failures of expertise. And this is where experts, I think, have to own some of this because the public has been so rough on them about the failures rather than the successes that experts now don't want to engage with the public and don't want to own their failures. Um, look at the beginning of the pandemic where Fauci and you know CDC, they admit and they said, look, we didn't want to cause a run on masks. Um, we screwed up the mask advice. We're owning that. We're sorry. And they're saying, aha, so you admit that you're just a bunch of lying charlatans that we should never listen to about anything. Right. And that makes experts gun shy to say, you know, if we ever admit a mistake, that means we have to just like everything else we ever say becomes irrelevant. I had someone say to me, for example, when I was doing a talk on um, a, a book talk in person on the death of expertise, and I pointed out how I had given my own doctor hell about um, eggs, right? Yeah. I said, doc, you told me not to eat eggs. And he, he sort of shrugged and he said, yeah, we got that wrong. Okay. Well, first of all, who figured out that eggs were okay for you? Other doctors doing <laughs> right. other studies that fact checked, you know, this is called peer review and science, which is a process. Um, but a guy in the audience said, well, I think it's very clear uh, that this shows that doctors don't know anything about heart disease. In other words, I want to drink a bottle of scotch and eat a cheeseburger for breakfast. And now I can because I caught you out on this one thing that now invalidates that you don't know anything about anything. And this is really a problem of, again, I keep coming back to this description of childlike, um, but you know, adults understand that other well-meaning adults will occasionally make mistakes and get things wrong. What Children do is to say, aha, I caught you and now I'm going to dunk on you and you never, I never have to listen to you again because this one time, um, you know, you were wrong about something. And people extend that even to cases where experts were not wrong. Uh, someone pointed out the other day that um, when talking about the vaccine, you know, the anti-vaxxers are saying, well, this is the same FDA that approved thalidomide. 
the, the drug that caused birth defects. And of course, the FDA, in fact, did not approve thalidomide and saved millions of Americans from potentially deadly effects because the FDA said, we looked at this and we don't think it's safe. And yet people have gotten it into their head because an expert somewhere in Europe failed, all experts failed. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, that, it, and that this thing that happened over 60 years ago, like is, is immediate, they, you know, if you say, look, you should really trust experts. They say, oh yeah, well, what about the thalidomide in the space shuttle? Well, it's, it's funny too, because there's this weird kind of double standard where like, there's this great graphic. Uh, it was like uh, Joe Rogan. And, and I know that I actually know the owners of this company. So it's, it was extra funny to me, but it was like Joe Rogan questioning, you know, um, a bunch of peer reviewed, you know, all this data, like, let's say about vaccines or whatever. And then it was like, meanwhile, uh, Joe Rogan endorsing uh, on it alpha brain product, which has, you know, one study with 60 participants that found a minor, you know, uh, bit of a positive correlation and that's sufficient. So it's, I think your, your point about being childlike, what we see in this is actually not a rejection of expertise at all but a cherry picking of expertise yes. that fits what one wants. And then ironically, holding those experts to the most preposterously loose standards I've ever to go back to Scott Adams, that Scott Adams really only credibility is that this guy makes a, a newspaper cartoon that, that's been popular and is wealthy because of it. But his predictions are like, overwhelmingly incorrect and wrong all the time, you know, objectively so. If this is going to happen, that doesn't happen. This is going to happen, that doesn't happen. And, well, Jenny, and of course, Jenny McCarthy, Jenny McCarthy right. and the anti-vax movement. What are your qualifications? Well, I'm beautiful and I was in Playboy and I'm an actress. And I did. She literally said at one point, I went to Google University. Right. No. And that, that's what I think is interesting about Scott Adams is like if if he were to be held to the skepticism or scrutiny that the 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 the, the things that are being tossed out were held to, I mean, he would he would crumble like a, like a house of cards, right? It, so it's this weird picking and choosing of expertise and then a moving of the goalposts or the standards by which one judges the experts. To, and it really all comes back down to, well, here's what I want to do and I'm looking or what I'm afraid to do or not do or whatever it is. And how can I pick and choose information that either allows me to do this, absolves me of responsibility uh, or blame, and then therefore I can be whoever I want to be. That's so it's it's this weird not rejection of expertise, but a, but a, a misuse of expertise. So one does not have to be changed or challenged. And this is why when people say, "Well, you know, I did my research," I I always come back at them and say, "No, you didn't do research. You surfed around the internet until you found the thing that agreed with what you wanted to think in the first place." Right. Um, you know, yeah. Did you, you do your own peer-reviewed study? Uh, right. you, you went to medical school? No, you Googled around. And you looked at, you know, healthinfomindbody.com, and you found well, even a, worse. Yeah. E even worse than that, you you started by saying, "I think vaccines are unsafe." So you went and typed in, "Vaccines are unsafe," and of course, it brought up, you know, a hundred sludgy websites that will that are run by you know kooks and charlatans who will tell you that vaccines are unsafe. Well, okay, you found what you were looking for. And then after you've spent all afternoon going down that rabbit hole and watching, you know, YouTube videos and looking at Facebook memes, you start walking around and saying, well, you know, I'm very informed on this. I'm, I did my research. Uh, a guy 
asked a question during one of my talks about this where he said, why should I have to listen to these experts when the journals like the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine are online and I can read them anyway? And I said, and he got very, you know, I mean, I won't say upset, but he was offended. I said, they're not written for you. <laughs> right. You don't even know what you're looking at. I said, that's like reading Architectural Digest thinking you're going to build a house. They're written by experts for experts based on foundational knowledge that all of them already have. It, they are not there to peruse the back issues. I mean, you know, I, I was like medical students and researchers spend years trolling through these, trawling, I shouldn't say trolling, trawling through these articles to assemble them so that then they can be um, judged and tested against each other. And then a new paper, this is, again, this is called science. This is how it's done. Um, but I, I, again, I had that weird feeling of how did this happen that the ordinary citizen, and you know, on, when it comes to medical stuff, I'm as ordinary as it gets. I don't even think that they could just like say, well, I'll just go read the Lancet. <laughs> that'll, that'll, you know, uh, and I'll be up to snuff on this stuff. It is interesting to think that most of the Stokes were financially successful. They were leaders, they were entrepreneurs, they were politicians, they were artists. So there's really nothing in Stoicism that's anti-money or success. I think all the four virtues uh, of the Stoics, courage, temperance, justice, wisdom, apply well to the idea of investing in money management. And that is why I love today's sponsor. Novo is the number one business banking app. It's built from the ground up to be powerfully simple and free. It's business banking that Money Magazine called the best business checking of 2021. With Novo, there are no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fee. Sign up for free in under 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash stoic, and they'll mail you a Novo debit card that you can use for free at any ATM. Novo makes banking easy and secure. You can manage your account in Novo's customizable web, Android, and iOS apps. Get your free business banking account in 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash stoic. That's banknovo.com slash stoic to sign up for free right now and get a free copy of Novo's Small Business Starter Guide, banknovo.com slash stoic. I think it's because they know if they claim that they got it from the Lancet, or I think it's it's like, well, I'll go read the tea leaves myself, knowing that they can interpret the tea leaves however they want to serve whatever agenda or, you know, sort of presupposition they already have, right? It's not like an open-minded, I'm going to go read the, the, the medical journal to, to learn. It's a, I'm going to find one out of a thousand articles that possibly doesn't disconfirm what I'm saying. And therefore or, or I have I'll, the proof. Or I'll, or without context, I'll grab that one sentence that is the normal caveat of uncertainty in a scientific article and say, aha. Yes. And and again, I, I take in the book, I take experts to task for this and to say, listen, you're going to have to, the, the expert communities need more public intellectuals. They need more people who can bridge the gap from um, you know, super detailed knowledge to uh, talking with the public, because a lot of experts and I had I talked to many of them in many fields when I was writing the book, who said, "Look, I don't like engaging with the public. They're just spoiling for a fight. They don't really want to hear what I have to say. Um, they're there to play gotcha and to see if you know uh, that I can get tripped up. And so I just do my work. Um, a lot of my colleagues in the academic fields say, you know." Um, they just don't, they don't even do book promotion. They're like, look, I wrote my book. If you you know read it, if you don't agree with it, that's your problem. 
I, I take a different view. I think public intellectuals, um, scholars and public intellectuals really need to get out there and to, and to engage the public and, and take their lumps, even when it's unpleasant. Um, well, I talked but about this I, with, with Malcolm Gladwell, because he and I both mm-hmm. get this, this idea of being uh, sort of accused sneeringly uh, by academics as, as being popularizers, as if, uh, one, that would be a bad thing. If the idea is good, it should be popularized. But two, um, the only reason the role of a popularizer exists is, by definition, uh, a failure of the creator of the idea to figure out how to communicate it in a way that makes it palatable to people, right? And so I think I think you're right. Um, part of the problem is that experts experts not only do a bad job communicating their ideas, but also being being unaware or uninterested in how misinformation and disinformation spreads, don't do a good job thinking about what they're presenting and the conversations they're having, and how that can be twisted and abused and and used for exactly the opposite purpose. Like you're saying, they put in the caveat, not thinking about, okay, how could a person who is deliberately trying to deceive yeah, the public per- take well, that's the pro- how, could, how could a person of bad faith use these words? You can't yes. write like that. You can't write articles and books and scientific research and papers saying, now, have I fireproof this against the dumbest or, or most bad faith interpretation there is? And I think a lot of experts just say, you know, my colleagues will understand it. And if other people want to crap on it, that they're, that's just bad faith. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a zinger here at Gladwell um, because there are limits to popularizing. Of course. And I think that is, I think his book on, um, what's the last thing he wrote on strategic bombing. Yes. The bomber mafia. Always, yeah. It wasn't, it, there were mistakes. There was, there was stuff in it that just was like, he was out over his skis and I appreciated what he did, but you know, that is a case of, Sometimes you're trying to explain complex stuff. And I think some the, the book on, on something like strategic bombing needs to be written by an expert on strategic bombing who has Gladwell's touch for communication. Right. I think it can go the other way, too, to say, look, I'm a popularizer. Tell me about a complex subject and I will break it down for the average person. That doesn't work either because then you don't have the foundational knowledge to do it. And I'm, I'm normally, you know, I liked a lot of the earlier stuff that that Gladwell wrote, but I, of course, I... I've been teaching in a war college for 26 years. And so when I read the strategic bombing thing, I went, oh, maybe this is a case where, you know, you kind of don't go in that direction. Well, um, I, I would agree. You need, effort, you, need both. You, know, you need the popularizer needs to have rigor and basis. And then also the academic needs to understand that you can't, your ideas are, are can't just be in a language that is read by 28 right, people. Right. That, I go after the experts for this and say, you know, the experts, what experts love to do is talk to other experts mm-hmm. because then they can just talk in that kind of ubby-dubby language of jargon and shorthand that, you know, we all love so much. Um, I even fall into it sometimes when I'm talking, you know, I'm or listening to my military colleagues talk and it's all full of acronyms and JFLAP and blip bloop and ABDIB. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, even I'm like, oh, wait, what were we talking about again? Yes. Because yeah. that, that ends up uh, uh, obscuring a lot. Um, but I, but I think there is this problem um, that expert failures. The experts don't want to like have a reasoned discussion about their failures because the public is completely irrational about it in terms of again this bad faith interpretation and things like well I don't trust big pharma. I hear that all the time. I don't trust big pharma. Really, you the American public takes three hundred thousand. 
this was the best guest I could make working with my research assistant. Something like 300,000 over-the-counter drugs every day. Different, different over yeah. the, stuff that was all prescription stuff years ago. And so I don't try, you know, that's all just, um, you know, I would never take this vaccine or prescription. I'll just take this over the counter thing that I don't realize was in fact an incredibly expensive prescription 20 years ago. And and it's just this constant drumbeat of bad faith that is meant to say, I am empowered and you're not the boss of me. And you can understand why experts just say, you know, I don't want to have a conversation about this because it's not a conversation and there's no upside in it for us. No, I think I think that's right. It's it's like, look, it's a battle for ideas. And if only the crazy people are willing to go to war over over an idea, uh, they end up winning because they care the most. I think that's really dangerous. And then to go to our point about sort of picking and choosing, that is the irony of, again, this sort of rejection of science or medicine or this political. It's like, um, I'm not going to take the vaccine. I don't trust it, even though my doctor is uh, telling me to take it. Um, but as soon as I get sick, I'm willing to hand my life over to the medical establishment. Right. And I'm going to be really upset if they don't save my life. So it's this, I, it's insane. I think I have a moment in the book where I say something like, we're, it's easy to be skeptical of medical advice until you have a fever of 104. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know, use all your, uh, you know, use all your training and art to, to save me. Uh, and Again, we do it because it's empowering. I think one thing that is different in the modern era that um, social media and um, maybe cable television, I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities for this. People didn't used to be able to derive a lot of psychic income from being um, uh, naysayers about expertise. You know, it was like you you would go to your doctor and the doctor says, well, I'm going to have to you know, saw your leg off or whatever, or take your, you know, gallbladder out. And if you were really concerned about that, you said, hmm, well, I'd like a second opinion. I'd like to talk to another doctor. Now, but of course there was nothing in it for you other, in fact, it took more time. You had to make another appointment. You had to go through this. Now you can just go home or you can pull out your phone and say, hey, get a load of this quack telling me he's got to take my gallbladder out. And suddenly there's all this um, energizing psychic income that comes from people saying, don't let anybody push you around. Don't, t- don't let them tell you what to do. You know, be your own man. Um, and, and, you know, in the end, you still have a doctor standing there saying, I have to take your gallbladder out or you're going to be very sick. Um, and and I, I, I'm, I think that ability to generate psychic income and suddenly feel important also is a way of dealing with news you don't like. You know, um, you know you're, you're overweight, you're diabetic, you're... Um, not getting enough exercise, uh, you, you know, you can go and say, well, here's a hundred other people now who will tell me that you're wrong and um, it's totally okay for me to smoke, you know, or, right. or to, you know, to drink a box of wine for breakfast or something um, because we've just become kind of spoiled that way. We, we don't, we don't think of ourselves as having control. And it's when you don't think of yourself having control, you look for scapegoats. Well, you, you talk, say everyone's lying to me. You talk about this. I think it was an Atlantic piece, but you talked about because you've been talking about childlike. And I think some people some people sort of instinctively feel like, oh, this is picking on people who are not very bright or who are blaming the victim. Yeah. The, the, and, and there is there is a, t- a degree of that, I guess. But I, what I really liked was your piece about uh, 
serious people versus unserious people. And what's ironic is like, basically, if I remember the argument correctly, that a lot of what we're talking about is just not serious. This isn't stuff that that the stakes are very high. That's not what it's saying. But but these people, it's not even bad faith. This is not what a serious person would say. This isn't how they would comport themselves. And it, it strikes me that that people just plain sort of don't know how to argue, don't know how to act, and and they just they just don't know how to be an adult person in the world. Yeah, and let me let me add by the way for anybody listening that who doesn't know me or ha- hasn't followed me on social media, I am in many ways a completely unserious person in a lot of parts of my life. I mean, right. you know, I'm a 60 year old guy who has long discussions with other people on Twitter about, um, you know, the best weapon in Fallout 4 and, you know, whether um, it's a, you know, sniper plasma rifle or, uh, you know, a cryogenic grenade because I play, I'm 60 years old and I play video games. Right. Um, you know, life can be full of playful, goofy moments. I mean, my, you know, everyone knows who my cat is. Everybody knows that I am completely ridiculous about my my cat. Um but that's different than knowing when to put all that aside and say, now, look, we have to have a serious discussion about the alternatives in Afghanistan. We have to have a serious discussion about, um, you know, mandating vaccines or public health regulations. And I think we've kind of lost the adulting ability to kind of put down your game console or set your Bloody Mary to the side and to say, look, you know, as you say, how does a serious person who believes that things matter um, would talk about this. And unfortunately, in addition to the national motto of you're not the boss of me, one of the corollaries of that is law, whatever, you know, we've, right. we've just become a, we've become a society where we think, well, nothing really has consequences and nothing really matters. And, you know, every day is just like every other day. And, you know, and this is actually, I think, um, when you look back at, for example, at the 2016 election, There were a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump simply because they thought it would be hilarious. Or the, the, I just want to see what happens. I just want to see what happens. Because, you know, what could go wrong if the chief, uh, you know, um, chief executive of the United States and the guy holding the nuclear codes to enough firepower to destroy the entire Northern Hemisphere, you know, what could go wrong? It'll be funny. It'll be a laugh riot. It'll be interesting. It'll be like reality TV. And, you know, we just didn't used to vote that way. I mean, we didn't used to be the kind of country that just says, um, you know, let's just see what happens for shits and giggles. Well, and, I've, and got, I've got a I, lot I, of I pushback. Really got I mean, Neil Postman wrote about this 35 years ago when he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he said, you know, how do we take up arms against the sea of troubles when everything dissolves into giggles? I, I've gotten in trouble with my audience about this because I've, I've, I've pushed back on one of the things that really gets me, and I know I'm supposed to be stoic about it, but people will say something like, and they've said this since the beginning of COVID, they said something like, why are we so concerned about a virus with a a 1% or a 2% or a 0.1% fatality rate, right? Like this is the sort of the law whatever response. And, And why I have pushed back on that and made a big deal out of it is because I'm taking it seriously, right? You, let, let's actually, not the virus, let's just take that comment seriously, right? What that comment is, is effectively saying, I'm cool with somewhere between 
6 million and a million Americans dying, right? If you're saying a 99% or whatever percentage you choose, if you're saying, why do we care about a thing that has a low percentage rate? Well, let's just, let's take it, let's take your remarks seriously and do the math on what that means, right? And so, so where I, I think it, it's problematic and, and why people, people are sort of not being serious is, um, if, 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 if your remark is taken seriously, the implications are monstrous. You are saying something like, uh, and I, Holocaust comparisons are, 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 are always fraught, but you're saying like, not that many people died in the Holocaust. Why are we making such a big deal out of this? Right. You're, you're effectively, well, you're, you're being, uh, you're being George C. Scott in, in Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. I'm uh, president, you know, 10, 20 million dead tops. I'm not saying we won't get our hair must. Right. You know, it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's inane. That's an inane thing to say. Well, you know, 5 million people die. I won't be one of them. Uh, you know, shit happens. That's the way it goes. No. It's so much is, worse than inane, though. It's monstrous. I mean, like, it's yeah, it monstrous. Is. It really is. Um, and, you know, think of how selectively we are serious, because I, I'm, I don't know what your audience's feelings on this are, but we are having this, you know, gut-wrenching debate uh, about Afghanistan. Right. Now, over the course of 20 years... 2,600 Americans have died. And, you know, that's a, any, any American service person lays down their life. You know, this is the saddest thing in the world, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, this is someone who died for their country and in the service of their nation. The people you're talking to don't seem to be, and I'm sure there are many of these people who say, this is an outrage. Afghanistan was a crime. We were lied to. This is horrible. This was preventable. 2,600 people died. You know, in other words, uh, um, you know, uh, about 130 people died over the every year for the course of 20 years. 600,000 deaths in 18 months doesn't seem to move the same needle, right. including the fact that probably about three or 400,000 of those were completely preventable. A, a disaster, a taking of human life among fellow American citizens that dwarfs the total cost of Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam and World War II and World War I and Korea all put together. But because it would be inconvenient and affect your life and make it so that you can't go to a restaurant or that you have to cancel a concert or you couldn't fly to Orlando, you, people adopt, as you say, this kind of monstrously louche kind of pose to say, well, you know... I need to go to Orlando anyway, and if some people die, some people die. I mean, it is it is remarkably selfish and silly, and and it and it shows the hypocrisy of it that the same people who would be outraged over a fraction of those deaths, when it doesn't involve them, because then the outrage is easy, um, decide to shelve that outrage because it would affect their life in some way. Yeah, and, and that's the definition of unseriousness. I live an active life. I take my walk or my run in the morning. I sit and write in my office. And then uh, I come home. I jump in the pool with the kids. We take an evening walk or an evening bike ride. Uh, I work out in the evenings as well. I'm always working out. And that's why I was so excited to discover today's sponsor, 10,000. Actually, I didn't even discover them. My friend Rich Roll sent me a bunch of pairs, and I love them. 10,000 makes the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable shorts you will ever wear. I'm wearing the interval short right now. It's great. Dries quick when I jump in the pool. Doesn't soak up a lot of sweat. 
doesn't make noise. It's not like swishy. You know, I wear them when I record podcasts or give virtual talks. No one can see my legs. So it doesn't matter. If you want to try 10,000, they are offering listeners this podcast 15% off your first purchase. Go to 10,000.cc. That's 10,000 spelled out, not the number, .cc, not .com, 10,000.cc, and enter code STOIC to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000.cc, enter code STOIC. Right. No, I would argue like a good litmus test for seriousness is what is the actual, like, let's, let's, uh, follow what you're saying. Let, let, let's extend out, track out what you're saying on what that would actually mean in the real world. You know, Kant's moral imperative of like, what would it look like if everyone acted this way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think right. a serious person thinks about the consequences of their beliefs, of their actions, of, 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 of an idea throughout society, where an unserious person Again, thinks this is all happening on the internet, or it remains in the YouTube, like in you know, in the YouTube comment section, as opposed to being a small drip in a tidal wave of misinformation or you know bad thinking or or whatever it is. These things have consequences, and a serious person takes their role, even if we all have a, a minuscule role in the Republic or in uh, the, the, the human species. Uh, obviously, each of our individual actions are, are relatively minor. But, you know, the core of Stoicism is like, well, what I control is me and what I do and what I believe and what I think. And so I'm going to take that very seriously. I think it was Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, let evil come in the world, but not through me. Right. And I think right. people have lost the ability a good ch- like a good chunk of the people have lost the ability to comprehend that line of thinking at all in fact they they think the exact opposite well but that's the problem of narcissism mm-hmm. that you don't think of other people as people you think about what sort of amuses you in the immediate moment you don't see yourself um i mean we really in addition to narcissism we are really captured by presentism where you don't see yourself as part of a continuity with things that came before you and you don't care about what's going to come after you. Right. Um, you know, it's like, we're, we're all like the guy in Memento in the movie Memento, where we get up every morning and we start all over again with new memories. Um, and we don't really care about it that much because anything that would inconvenience us is therefore, you know, morally wrong in some way. Because, you know, we then reverse engineer it to why this thing that I don't like um, is is wrong in some larger way. And the idea we're just we're not resilient about these things enough to say, um, you know, it's going to inconvenience me to wear a mask or, um, you know, I got to go get a vaccine because, you know, even though I got to take time out of my day and I don't want to get vaccinated and it's a pain in the ass. we then reverse engineer all of that to why no one should ever have to do that. Right, right. Well, I think I think two examples of this unseriousness that I'd love your take on. So one, there's a barbershop across the street from, from my office and my bookstore here in Texas. And they interviewed him. He was not vaccinated. You know, there's people, I, I can't think of a job you'd need, you'd want to be vaccinated more than really. in a barbershop, right? A small windowless right. room uh, with, with people coming in all day that you're right next to. And he said something like, um, well, I can't afford to miss work from, uh, you know, a negative reaction to uh, the vaccine, which is, you know, a reality of our our sort of system that there's not enough slack in, you know, people's lives that they could afford to miss a day or two of work. But it's also a fundamentally 
illogical and unserious thing to say because how much work can you afford to miss uh, when you're sick with COVID or you're on a ventilator or you're dead, right? And so, so there's this there's this thing where because I think this is more on the left, but people are you you immediately feel sympathy for the remark because the the circumstances are largely true, but the statement is on itself preposterous and illogical and that's not even getting into the elements of it that are selfish and a sort of abdication of one's responsibility to other people. You know, one thing I think of when people say that, and there are people who literally, you know, like I can't, you know, afford to miss a day of work. Okay. Um, you know, but you, first of all, you can't afford to die of COVID either. You can't afford to die of COVID, but also it is by no means, I mean, to say, you know, that again is looking for an excuse. I don't want to do this. So I'm going to assume that a, you know, drop me into bed reaction, which is not what most people experience anyway, is going to be the thing that happens to me. And therefore that's my reason. I'm going to, you know, worst case it to say this will happen to me. But here's a better test of the of this kind of hypocrisy, because I've known people like this in my life say, oh, I can't, uh, can't do this thing um, because, you know, work. I have two tickets to the Super Bowl. You'll have to take two days off of work. Do you want them? Whoa, wait a minute. All of a sudden, you know, that missing a couple of days of work, uh, geez, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's amazing how we will find the time to do the things that we want to do. When people say to me, for example, how can I be a better citizen? You know, what's your, what? Do you, how do I deal with this death of expertise thing since you're criticizing so many of us? I say, read a paper. Read a newspaper, just one a day. They say, they will literally say, I don't have time for that. And I say, you have time to spend hours falling down the YouTube rabbit hole or looking at stupid TikToks or, you know, a million other things in your day. What you mean is this would not be a priority among all the other things you want to do. And that inability to prioritize Again, one of the things that makes an adult an adult is the ability to set priorities, even when they are unpleasant, um, you know, is a fundamentally unserious thing. So I, I mean, I take it as a real thing that, you know, there are people who say, look, my, I work two jobs. I have two small kids. Um, you know, I can't get away to get vaccinated. I can't get away to vote. I can't get away to register to vote. I think that a good society should say, okay, you know what, we're going to, we're going to reach out and help you somehow. Sure. But I think a lot of this is just cherry picking and excuse making to say, you know, I just don't want to do it. And interestingly enough, when you see in places that I was reading a piece in the New York Times the other day about younger people saying, oh, I'm too busy. I didn't want to do it. I can't get vaccinated. I'm not sure. And then a mandate went through, I mean, you know, a lot of New York City restaurants and other places saying, well, we're just not going to serve you. And they went, eh, OK, I guess I have time. I mean, it's amazing how fast this evaporates when you say, I'm going to take it out of the realm of choice. And people say, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. I have the time. And so, I, I just think it's not an adult conversation. So what do you do? How does this society function? It struck me as like sort of the problem of our time. And I think this goes to the new book, My Own Worst Enemy, or Our Own Worst Enemy. How, because it's not that, it's not even that the majority of people think this way. I mean, the numbers, uh, I think you could you could decide to look at it two ways, right? It's that... Uh, there's a lot of people that are feeling this way or they're, they're a minority to some degree. But how does a society continue to function when a significant chunk, whether it's 15 or 40% of the population, 
just sort of rejects out of hand the idea that we owe an obligation to the common good or that each we, other yeah yeah or, or or that facts matter or like yeah. what, what do you do when a significant chunk of the population has just decided we're obstinate we only care about dunking on the other people we we don't actually have any of our own ideas but we're very clear that we would like to stop you from doing whatever it is that you think society should be doing yeah. And, you know, on top of it, it's a sliding scale, right? I mean, it's not a yes or no thing that there are people who are civic and good. And then there are people who are uncivic and think facts don't matter and, you know, are just in it for the laughs. There's also just a kind of, um, you know, there are a lot of good people who think facts matter, who nonetheless say, eh, voting, whatever, I'll get to it. Yes. You know, um, and in the most I think the most dangerous election of modern American history, which was 2020. Now, I, I, in, in the new book, I tell people, stop catastrophizing elections. You know, stop with the existential, oh, my God, this is it. You know, um, I tell a story about my dad and Barack Obama and Mitt Romney and my dad, who was, you know, very partisan right wing guy. Nonetheless, even my dad was able to say, you know what? They're both good guys. They're good men. We're going to be fine no matter how this works out. But in 2020, I didn't have that feeling. I said, you know, this this guy is going to upend democracy and do everything he can to destroy the Constitution and pull the pillars of the temple down um, if he doesn't get his way. And even in that election, only 66% of us voted and only about half of the people under 30 voted. That's abysmal. That's 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 embarrassing. That's to a to a superpower. Uh, uh, you know the 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 exemplar of democracy to the rest of the world that that is shameful, and so that's not all composed of people saying I'm you know I'm an anti-vax anti-fact you know nutcase. That's just a lot of people who went. Eh, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered. And and at the end of our own worst enemy, the 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 I present some scenarios. But the one that worries me the most is the one that I think is already happening, which is kind of a mildly technocratic semi-democracy where most of us just say, you know what, um, as long as the Wi-Fi is on and there's enough cable channels and the beer's cold, whatever. And, and that's how you lose a democracy. It doesn't happen with like a, you know, a second Russian revolution or a civil war, or the French revolution or any of that. It just happens because we just decide not to care about it anymore. And that that really worries me. Yeah, is it is it a collapse of meaning? Is it a collapse in a be belief in our own agency? Is it, you know, I, I, is, is it that one doesn't think that an individual can make a difference? Or is it that one just is too busy and can't be bothered and doesn't really think about it? I, I and it, it, to go from the death of expertise to our own worst enemy, I, I actually argue that it's a side effect of, um, prosperity and peace and affluence. I mean, we're, we just don't, there's a great quote from uh, a British writer who said recently, said last year, he said, the problem with modernity is not that it's too hard, but that it's too easy. And, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not faced with an alternative model uh, like the Soviet Union, where we could see every day what it looks like if we lose, if we lose our democracy. We're not faced with the Great Depression or even the ongoing, you know, misery of the 1970s. Even though you hear people saying now, oh, the worst times ever, and 
you know, look at housing prices in San Francisco. How can anybody call this a democracy? You know, um, and and I think it's just we've gotten used to a very high standard of living, and we think, you know what, good enough is good enough. And at some point, when things slide backwards, and you suddenly realize that you don't have uh, the same influence over your government that you you might have had twenty years ago, it's too late. You've I, I keep saying that people are going to end up ruling you not by takeover, but by default, because you just did, decided not to do it. You just said, look, you know, make sure that I'm not inconvenienced and bothered too much, and I'll keep sending you to Washington. I mean, you really see this in the in the incredibly cynical behavior, particularly of the Republicans. I mean, the Republicans really elevated this to an art form of, look, I'll make you feel good about all of your choices and all of your biases and all of your bigotry. Um, just keep sending me to Washington because I like living in Washington and you like it when I say inflammatory things and let's just keep this deal going for a while. And that's not government. That's just, that's just, um, you know, a game of musical chairs, uh, that, that the citizens decide to keep playing because it's, it's better than actually going back to work and, and thinking hard about things that require difficult decisions. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it's, Almost with the politicians too, it's this idea that this is pretend, it doesn't really matter. There was oh, kind yeah. of a brief moment like on January 6th, and maybe it continues all the way to January 8th before we revert it back to the old thing. To, it didn't even continue to the next morning of January 7th for, I mean, yeah, I, I know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I know where you're going about this for like these first few hours after the insurrection. Even the most, even Lindsey Graham, one of the most unserious people there is, is saying, "You know, I'm off this train. We've got to start thinking about these things." Real, and by the next day, it's like, "Yeah, I don't know what I was saying. Everything's fine." Yeah, there was a Republican uh, congressman that I know that uh, that texted me on the on January sixth as he was locked in his office. I, I texted him and said, "Hey, are you okay?" And he said, "Oh my God, this is worse than you could possibly imagine. You were right about everything." <laughs> this is literally what he said to me. I'm going to remember it for the rest of my life. And then, you know, a few days later, uh, he voted against impeachment, right? Like, um, you're, you're just like, oh, okay, this is, if this doesn't wake one up, I'm not sure anything really can. Like, if, but, if a pandemic can't, can't do it, how can anything wake some of these people up from the insane rabbit hole they've, they've gotten themselves down into? But but it did, and they've painted themselves into a corner. I think it did wake them up, but they said, hmm, okay, so this is, I mean, God, Ryan, what a great email to get from a congressman. You are right about everything. Um, you know, you, you, you don't get many of those in your life. Yeah. But of course, a couple of days later, whoever this is, is thinking, now, if I say this and do the principled thing, I have to go home. Right. I can't live in the Emerald City anymore. I don't get to, you know, I don't get to eat at, um, you know, um, I don't know in my day, it was La Colleen. You know, I don't get to yeah. eat at the swishy restaurants. I don't get to, you know, um, wear the cool pin. I don't get to go be in Congress. Um, I, I mean, one thing I, I respect about Adam Kinzinger when all this happened, he said, look, if I get defeated because of this, I'll go do something else. Yes. You know, like I can do something else, but you have a lot of people. I always say that it's, that I think that the foundational motto of everything Elise Stefanik says always boils down to, I'm not going back to upstate New York. Like that's, that's, that's her overriding government philosophy. Right. I didn't go to Harvard so that I can end up living in upstate New York. And you people, you little people are going to keep sending me here 
so that I can keep pumping you up and pissing you off and you'll, you know, this rage will keep me in office. Um, you know, but these are fundamentally unserious people. I mean, look at Josh Hawley. This is this man is the embodiment of unseriousness, but that's what makes him dangerous because people that are that cynical um will say anything to keep, you know, to keep living in in Oz. Um, J.D. Vance. I mean, look, J.D. Vance, who everyone said, finally, a serious person, you know, talking to his own community, thinking about the hard things. J.D. Vance has become a complete clown because he wants to go live in the Emerald City. You know, Seneca talks about how we waste our most valuable resource, which is time, right? I think as far as an entrepreneur, someone who runs a company, where do you find yourself wasting the most amount of time? It's in hiring people. Not only is hiring people a pain, and not only does it take a lot of time, but if you hire the wrong person, oh man, it is going to cost you so much more time. And that's why when we hire people here at Daily Stoic, or when I'm looking for a research assistant, or any kind of job, we always post on LinkedIn jobs. You can focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need and that they have. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people, and then use the simple tools on LinkedIn jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. More than 40 million job seekers visited LinkedIn in the last week. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic. Post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. What is that, though? It's so it's so interesting. I was talking to a friend about this. I was like, okay, let's say you make, like, you make millions of dollars. You're famous. Uh, you have an enormous platform. What is it that you think you can do in Washington that is worth the debasement? that you don't have access to now. I mean, this is one of the things I said to the, the congressman I was telling you about I was, as he was sort of hemming and hawing, sort of, you know, not, not wanting to cut his own political throat. I was like, you know, it's worth pointing out here because you've told me many times, you hate your job. Like, you don't like it. So why would you uh, uh, debase yourself to keep it uh, if you don't actually like it? I, to me, that's the most inexplicable thing about the cowardice is it's not cowardice or, or it's not even sort of like opportunism for the aim of doing X, Y, or Z. You know, um, there's a moment in, I was just reading about Theodore Roosevelt's life where he sort of sticks with the Republican party when he probably should have walked away and ends up, he wouldn't have been president had he he'd done it. There are reasons to do it, but it's, it's the people, they hate their job. You know, like what, what is it that you are holding your fire for? I just don't understand. I, I think, I, and, you know, this is my guess about a lot of people. It is this terror of simply being an ordinary person. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I look at Josh Hawley and, and you can practically see him saying, look, uh, I didn't go to Stanford and Harvard uh, so that I could come back to Missouri and move to Sedalia and bring out a shingle and, and probate wills. I was slated for great things. Um, you know, Elise Stefanik, I didn't go to prep school in Harvard so that I could, you know, be a city councilor in Potsdam. I, I, I'm more important than that. Um, I may hate my job, but I'm at the center of the universe. You know, when I was in in my 20s, um, there was a bank in Washington. When I was working in D.C., there was a bank then called Riggs Bank. 
And they had the perfect ad for people who lived in DC. Their ad used to say Riggs Bank, the most important bank in the most, most important city in the world. And it was really meant to appeal to people who live in DC to say, where you, where you live is the center of the universe and this bank is the only bank for you. And I think that a lot of these folks, they may say, look, I hate my job, but that's, but I'm a senator and right. people open doors for me and I get picked up and dropped off and I have an aide that I can yell at and, you know, tell them to go get me a sandwich and, um, you know, and chew them out if there's not enough mayonnaise. Um, and unfortunately I have to deal with my constituents. And that actually leads to this very cynical behavior of saying the way I don't have to deal with my constituents is just feed the primary audience, the, the base that will always keep me in every year, just feed them the worst kind of bullshit um, you know, treat them like the rubes they are and tell them to keep sending me back to Washington. It's a fundamentally disrespectful relationship between dishonest um, and manipulative political entrepreneurs and a public that doesn't really want to think about hard stuff, that thinks that slogans and owning the libs and getting over on the other guy is the same thing as governing. Um, because they don't really care about it because there are no real consequences to them. I, I would be curious to talk. I get, I've, I've seen it happen and you, I've seen the denial that sets in. But the people who five years ago said, you know what? Donald Trump's going to take care of us. This is really going to change things. Um, is there anybody in the, you know, in the, in the uh, Ohio River Valley uh, who, who thinks that somehow things got better? But you they can't admit you got conned. People. That's the hardest mm-hmm. thing. You can't admit you've been conned. That, that's, that's- I keep saying, look, my taxes... You know, I'm not a particularly wealthy person, but I'm a, you know, I, I have a, I do a lot of speaking and writing and stuff like that. So I said, D- Donald Trump built a tax code that worked for me. Right. So, so he somehow helped me out. What did you get out of selling out the country? And they're like, well, I made you mad for a while. <laughs> that's pretty much that's, it. That's okay. But you also lowered my taxes and, you know, and it's all over. And what, you know, what's left now where we, what's left that we can work on together now? And the answer is pretty much nothing. And I, I don't know how to return to that without some sense. I wrote a piece a while back saying, you know, the first step to civic peace here is going to be the people are going to have to admit they were wrong and that they were conned because, you know, the, and that didn't happen. And that's why here we are eight months, you know, into the Biden administration with people still trying to, you know, overturn the Arizona vote. And invalidate ballots in you know Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Georgia, um, because if you can't just say you know this thing was a this thing was a con, then you're going to go to extreme lengths, including violence and all these crazy legal challenges, to, rather than just accept as adults and stoic adults might say you know I made a bad call here. Well, this is the um, fundamental corner that DeSantis and Abbott, I, I live in Texas, have backed themselves backed themselves into which is by not taking the thing seriously, they can't in, take it seriously now or else they're, they feel they're admitting you know, guilt or, or, or blame. And so they have to, to, to escalate the stupidity, the unseriousness over and over and over again. And, and I think, again, I, I see Abbott as a fundamentally unserious person. You're like, what, what are you even doing this for? You're fundamentally you know they, un, unelectable as the president of the United States. So what are you even doing it for? Like, what are you even getting out of it? That's what I find to be so good. psychologically fascinating. 
I think I think with some of these guys, the inability to co- to confront cognitive dissonance um, is you know just rules them completely. The idea that you would just uh, you know, be that you would do a George Wallace, right. And yeah. say, Hey, I was a racist and segregationist for a lot of years and I really screwed that up and I was wrong. And I'm, you know, asked for forgiveness. And then actually Wallace becomes governor again. Right. Um, but I think the other part of it is they, again, if you're governor of Texas, you like being governor of Texas and they have drawn a lesson from watching five years of Donald Trump, which is you can power through anything. Shamelessness is a virtue. Yes. And uh, and if you don't admit you're wrong, then people will take that in itself as a sign of strength. I mean, you know, Texas and Florida are going to stack bodies to the rafters in morgues, which is already happening. Um, but, you know, it, there are going to be people that say, that's my guy. He didn't back down. Um, because backing down or admitting nuance or possibly admitting a mistake is simply, you know, is the worst now in American life now that's become the worst of all possible things, and that just just for the sake of honesty, you know, I'm sure there are people listening saying, well, you know, Tom, have you ever had to do it? And uh, in the death of expertise, I talk about it very distinctly. I made a huge mistake thinking that Vladimir Putin, 20 years ago when he came to power, I said, no, I don't. This might not be so bad. I mean, maybe he's not as bad as he looks. And I kind of staked out a position for a few years where I said, give the guy, you know, let's see what happens. Um, You know, he seems to be just kind of a bureaucrat. And I finally just had to kind of one day stand up and say, look, I made a call. Uh, It was based on the evidence I had at the time. And I was wrong. And and for me to get that wrong in my profession, that's not trivial. That's not a mere, you know, footnoting error. That's me making a serious error of judgment. And you know, it's liberating to be able to do that. Nobody's going to be right all the time, but that that this is no longer what American life is about. American life now is, I was wrong. Fine. I'll show you how wrong I am. I'll quadruple down. Right. Um, and it doesn't, and it just doesn't matter because again, that's what children do. Adults own things and think about them and do better. Children say, uh, I'm never going to admit I was wrong. I'm not going to admit I cheated. I'm not going to admit I made the wrong move. And if you keep pushing me about it, I'm going to um, throw my soda all over the board and blow up the game. No, it's interesting because we tend to we'll be like, oh, this person's a psychopath or this person's a sociopath. I'd argue that you know those things, uh, a sociopath is, is usually aware that they're not having the emotion. I think you're, you're sort of uh, pointing that it's um, childlike is really important because I, it's actually... It's actually that, right? It, it's not like this calculating sort of weighing of the, it's the sort of emotional instinctual of, well, I, almost like an honor culture thing. Well, I can't admit this. So I, this is the right. only option available to me. Um, Especially if I want to keep being governor. Yes. You know, and in, and in the case of Ron DeSantis, where he has practically been anointed, I mean, we, we've seen this in his emails with Fox News, right? Fox is like, you're our guy. We think you're going to save the party from Trump. Um, you know, people in the conservative blogosphere and media world are saying, okay, DeSantis is the putative non-Trump front runner. Um, and he's like, okay. And that's that, you know, if you're that thirsty and insecure, uh, you say, admitting that I'm wrong about anything is the end of that ride. That means that I've, you know, that I have to get off this merry-go-round and I can't get back on. When in fact, in an earlier time, 
we respected politicians who kind of, you know, had second thoughts or who were nuanced or were willing to debate things without, you know, this, again, this kind of childlike, I am always right. And if I'm not right, this game sucks uh, approach. But these are unserious politicians being put in power by unserious people who are all about tribal winning. And, and I, you know, we're picking a lot on the right here, um, but there's a lot of that going on on the left as well. I sure. mean, you know, when, when there are people saying, well, I'm going to vote for Rashida Tlaib um, because she drops F-bombs and, you know, she makes me feel good uh, about, uh, um, you know, uh, um, about being a partisan warrior. That's not serious. That's not a serious, this is not a serious person in politics. Um, and there are plenty of unserious politicians. The only difference right now, I think, is that the Republicans are both unserious and, and dangerous at the same time. Yeah, well, but this unseriousness is not limited to one movement. No, definitely not. Although it is interesting, if you want to talk about sort of childlike traits, whataboutism is the ultimate oh. childlike trait. I, I tell people, I was, I was like, if I was in an argument, if, if I was in an argument with my wife, she was mad at me about something. And I respond, like the idea that she would just accept me pointing out things that she's done wrong as if they cancel each other out. That's just right. not how adult life works. And so the fact that there are unserious politicians sort of making sort of overt power grabs and constitutional and democratic threats does, uh, is not canceled out by the fact that, uh, you know, there's a first term congresswoman from this state or that state who's also crazy, you know, yeah. uh, it, I, it's a I, problem, but <laughs> they don't cancel each other out. You know, when I, when I, um, first time in my life, I voted straight democratic ticket because I just feel like the Republicans have become a dangerous. Me as well. I, Again, for people that don't know me, I mean, I was a Republican. I worked for a Republican senator in the 90s for, for John Hines of Pennsylvania. And so for me to just kind of vote a Democratic ticket was, was difficult. And um, a lot of times the the dunk culture of social media is I would then criticize. I think it's an American right to criticize the people you voted for. Sure. I'm not a team guy. I mean, I think, you know, we are better when we criticize our own. And yet people would say to me, well, you voted for this. This was your choice. And I'm like, yes. And I would again, um, you know, saying that I think Joe Biden has done a poor job with the pullout plan for Afghanistan does not mean that therefore it was OK that Donald Trump tried to destroy the Constitution. You know, and, and again, it's as you, it's just a childlike reasoning of like, uh, you or know, he hit me or he also does this well, or I stole a car. Uh, you know, well, you know, but I knew a, I knew a kid that, that, um, you know, hit his girlfriend once. Well that, okay. But, and that's terrible. And thank you for pointing it out, but you're still under arrest for grand theft. Right. Or you get pulled over speeding. The cop doesn't care when you say, but other people were also going fast. Right. Right. What about the guy in the red car that was ahead of me? Uh, you know what cops always say to that? I, I didn't catch him. I caught you. Right. Exactly. 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 Yeah. It's a, it's a fundamental, it, it's, it's, uh, and, de and Democrats, just, just to kind of yeah. tease out that final point, Democrats will often say, well, how come we have to be the one held to rules? Well, my answer is, if you want to be the adult governing party, then part of being the adult governing party is sucking that up and accepting that your opponents live by a double standard, but that you will not. That you will hold yourself to a consistent standard rather than play the whataboutism game. And it, and it does not help when when you have people on the left saying, well, the Republicans did all these terrible things. How come I have to be the good one? Because you want to be the governing party. That's why. Yes. People will say that. Well, well what about Andrew Cuomo? And it's like, well, I don't give it. I don't live in New York, number one. And number two, 
I don't give a shit if he sucks and he did horrible things. Like, what do I want to keep him around for? You know, well, like, it's not that also, reasonable. Reasonable adults change their mind. I mean, I remember saying about Cuomo, you know, it's it's nice to see a non-sociopath dealing with the pandemic because, of course, Trump was on television talking about, you know, sticking bleach up your nose and swallowing, you know, right. uh, black lights right. and whatever. And, you know, Cuomo was saying, here's what we're doing today. This is the thing. Now, when it came out that Cuomo uh, covered up uh, a lot of deaths and and tried to kick kitty litter over it and um, turned out to be a serial sexual harasser, I said, this is new information. He should resign. That I think that's also the sign of a reasonable adult say, okay, I have new information. This guy resigned. But that does not mean that, therefore, I hope Ron DeSantis becomes president. Right. Well, I had two two different issues. I had Mike Duncan on who wrote this great book, The Storm Before the Storm, one of my favorite sort of history books that sort of explains where we are now through the lens of Rome. It's a great book. And he was saying, look, the other thing is like um, when you have sort of this faction, like when we're sort of being cut up into these factions, um, he's like, really, all you can do is police your own side of the street because that's where you have sweat. And so, so the whataboutism thing, it's actually, it's not just like, oh, this bad person is trying to excuse their bad stuff because what is the other party doing? But it's also like, actually, you have to be stricter about norms, about ethics, about how you hold people to account inside your own party. If you want to have any credibility or uh, sway when you say it matters that my opponent is doing X, Y, or Z. And so, plus it's just... How can you look yourself in the mirror if you don't hold your, like, it's not just, oh, we have to be the responsible party. Yes, because you are a responsible person. That's what it means. And and consistency is its own reward. I mean, it is not, you know, to say, well, I need to cut a break for my guy because he's my guy. Well, then all you've done is set up the precondition for the next time when someone says, well, I'm going to cut a break for my guy because he's my guy and you're not going to like it. Um, you lose the ability to hold anyone to account if you don't hold yourself to account. That's right. And, and I think that is, uh, you know, the really, t- I, I, one of the ways that people, you know, again, the, one of the um, fusillades I used to take from people on the left, they'd say, I'd say, look, here, as a former Republican and a never Trumper, here is my advice about how to beat my old party. Right. And they'd say, don't tell us what to do. Go fix your own party. And I'm like, you know, that's that's not... I mean, I am now part of your coalition and I am trying to help you understand the battle plan that people on my side used to use and, you know, just turtling up and saying, well, I just want to do what I want to do. That that's not a that's not a serious response. That's not a serious approach to, you know, winning these battles and to doing it in a way that you want to be able to live with down the line. And, you know, a lot of times the answer was, well, we can, you know, uh, we don't need your advice. We're going to fight dirty and do nasty things just like you guys did. And I'm like, the reason we're here now is because my side made those excuses for itself. And you're going to end up in the same place sooner than you want to be. Um, so I, I, I think so far I, I'm encouraged. I mean, I when Joe Biden won the nomination, that to me, there was a huge, I took a huge sigh of relief because I said, This is a lot. This is millions of people saying, no, no, this isn't a joke. You know, this isn't just a lark. This we really do need to nominate somebody who can actually win this election, has experience governing, is someone we've known, you know, a known quantity, someone we've seen in public life before. 
Um, but I'm just not sure how long that's going to hold out. I mean, we're facing one of the greatest crises of government uh, since the Civil War. And once again, in a very unserious way, we're all bickering about, you know, Democrats are all bickering about the infrastructure bill and then going on August recess. That, that feels fundamentally unserious to me. But I think it goes back to your point earlier about people saying, eh, how bad can it be? You know, really bad. Are, it can be you know, real things bad. Things are better. And, you know, how, how much, how bad can it really be now? And yeah, the answer is really bad. Yeah. And uh, it, it really, really, I mean, I, it could be worse, but it's hard to imagine it being worse. Well, and things could get worse. And then that's not the time to suddenly become serious. Yeah. You know, uh, um, you know, when uh, when you're at the gates of Leningrad, you know, or the or the tank traps of Moscow, you don't say, hey, you know, uh, maybe you should have taken these guys a little more seriously in 1939. I mean, there are, you know, this sense that we can just fix it all tomorrow um, it, it is, again, that kind of like um, procrastinating childlike unseriousness of, you know, it's too hard. It's too complicated. Let somebody else fix it. Um, we won the presidential election and that fixes everything. Uh, and I actually, you know, the, the Republicans did the same thing when Trump was elected. They said, well, now everything's going to get fixed. You know, now everything's really going to change. And, you know, and thank God that they were unserious about changing it and didn't know what they were doing, because that's why so much that's why Trump's damage was limited uh, and could, wasn't as bad as it could have been. Why don't you think Let's, there's there's this also this idea of like the rhetoric is always like it's an emergency. It's the most important thing ever. We're all going to die. The constitutional crisis, everything's about to fall apart. And then, as you said, but August recess is coming up or but yeah. this, this or that. Right. So I see this with some of my friends who are like, I can't believe Abbott is doing this. You know, like I can't like he's making us send our kids uh, to, to school and it's going to be dangerous and blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, but we still did it, of course, because we don't have yeah, any sure. actual say over our lives. It's like if, if you actually thought what you're saying, um, then the decision you need to make here is very obvious. But so it's it sort of we're, we're running around as if, you know, uh, it, everything is on fire and then sort of acting as if, you know, someone's coming to put it out right away. Or so I, the, that analogy this, this sucks, a, but you get this, my no, point. No, no, it's, it's actually a key point. And you're making a key point, which is the big um, delta between say and do. Yes. Uh, and part of it is we've all been crying wolf, you know, for so long. I mean, the Republicans burned themselves with this uh, on Obama. Oh, Obama, black socialist, you know, not born here, African, yada, yada, yada. We're going to be communists in four years. We're going to have concentration camps and death panels. And of course, you know, by 2012, people are going, eh, this turns out that wasn't really true. Um, and the same, I've had this argument many times with people on the left of saying, you know, it's not Nazis, fascists. Um, I'm like, look, you've you've gone to that well so many times that you've burned people out on that terminology. The way that you show seriousness now that all that rhetoric has simply become crying wolf so many times is if you genuinely believe that we're facing an existential threat from an authoritarian movement, as I do, by the way, then act like it. Then take the measures that, you know, you don't go off on August recess. You don't you know, dicker over uh, whether the infrastructure bill is serving your, um, you know, uh, cherished constituency and hold it up until late September. You do 
um, go great guns on a congressional investigation of one six, even bigger than you're going now. Um, you do keep Congress in session. You do expel members of Congress who are openly advocating for violence and sedition. Um, but you know, th- th- this is why this is how you become an unserious nation. Is that on the one hand, you know, you rant about socialism, but say, but mm, yeah, as long as my Medicare keeps coming and my Social Security checks, then I guess it's not really socialism. Or you talk about you know Nazis and fascists, and you say, but. Eh, August recess and whatever we'll we'll figure it out in September. We we are just not a serious people, right? We talk very seriously, but then when it comes down to the actions, uh, we're not we're not very serious. Well, because that requires us to be inconvenienced. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy. Well, I've appreciated your writing through the the last four or five years. Uh, I'm so glad I found it. I loved the first book, and uh, the new one is very good as well. Uh, not not two particularly hopeful books, but I think that that goes to our point is a, a serious person can digest facts that are not pleasant and get, you know, a negative diagnosis from your doctor and go, OK, I have to do something about this. Not, uh, well, that's not fun. So I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ryan. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We just crossed more than 50 million downloads with the Daily Stoke podcast. Thanks to you. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share it with your friends. Send an episode you liked. If you liked today's episode, send it to someone you know. We're always trying to reach more people and we appreciate it. Thank you for helping us keep the lights on here at Daily Stoic. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic.